Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Michael Cunningham and Adam Wheeler. Hello. Hey, how you doing? We're coming to you once again from our home, so please forgive any baby or pet sounds or lawnmowers. That you Dogs and loud neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any of that. Um, we're going for authentic here. How about you you guys? Are you holding up okay still under quarantine? Doing pretty good so far. Yeah, yeah. Doing all right, trying new recipes and stuff like that. So Yeah. That's one nice thing about Books and Bites. It's kind of forcing me to try try some things. <laughs> Gotta get creative. I made a curry burrito the other day because that's what mm. I had. Yeah. Some leftover good. curry and I put in a tortilla. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that works. <laughs> I, I've also learned that you can make an omelet with pretty much any leftovers you have, mm-hmm. too. <laughs> oh, how handy. I have an omelet recipe today. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, really? Awesome. <laughs> so today we're talking about books that were originally written in another language, but have been translated into English, um, unless you read some other language. Um, I only read English, so that's that's what I did. Um, this is number five on the Books and Bites Challenge, and we hope that everyone is still reading along with us. On this challenge, um, don't forget there's a Kindle or a $100 gift card to Joseph Beth at stake. I personally think that books in translation are great reading choices right now because they allow you to travel to another place without leaving home. What what have you guys thought about this particular challenge? I thought that you get a lot of really good insight into a lot of different cultures, um, especially in my first recommendation um, takes place in Iraq, and you got a lot of that um, insight into the daily struggle of what that looks like mm-hmm. in modern day Baghdad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was kind of challenging to find something because I'm already really picky with my reading, and then I added in the uh, stipulation of finding something that was originally written in a different language and then interpreted and then also available online. So. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it got difficult, but it was still fun. I learned a lot. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, making it, having to also be all digital does add an even even bigger challenge. And I actually, one of my books was available as as an audio book, and I originally listened to it, but it was just one of those books you had to pay really close attention to. And I was listening while I was driving back when we were still <laughs> going to work. And um, so I felt like I needed to read it again. Um, and we didn't have it digitally. So I ended up buying the ebook. Um, but I really enjoyed it. So I, I, I'm glad that I bought it. So um, my first book is The Housekeeper and the Professor by Yoko Ogawa, and it's translated from the Japanese by Steven Snyder. The Housekeeper and the Professor is told from the point of view of a single mother who works in the home of a former math professor with a traumatic brain injury. Due to a car accident that took place 17 years ago, 
The professor's short-term memory is limited to 80 minutes. He doesn't remember the housekeeper from day to day or even from hour to hour. In fact, he has to pin notes to himself to know who she is. In spite of his disability, the professor is still a brilliant mathematician entering math problem contests in journals for the prize money. He's also very kind. When the professor first learns that the housekeeper has a 10-year-old son, he demands that she bring him to his house after school instead of leaving him home on his own, asking, quote, are you going to stand there frying hamburgers when your child could be dying in a fire, unquote? The professor takes to the boy immediately, calling him Root because his flat head makes him look like a square root. The professor connects to both the housekeeper and Root through math. The two discover a love of the discipline thanks to the professor's informal lessons. I've personally always hated math, but this book reveals its poetry. As I listened to the audiobook, I couldn't help wishing I'd had a math teacher like the professor. The Housekeeper and the Professor is a short, lyrical, and bittersweet novel about the tenuousness of time and memory and the importance of living in the present. It's available as an ebook on Kentucky Libraries Unbound using the Overdrive or Libby apps and as a downloadable audiobook on Kentucky Libraries Unbound and RB Digital. According to the website norecipes.com, Japanese Hamburg steak or hambagu, is a popular home-cooked Western-style dish which, like the American hamburger and Salisbury steak, has its roots in Germany. My husband made the recipe, and it may have been the best hamburger I've ever had. Granted, I can't remember the last time I had a hamburger, but Scott, who generally eats more meat than I do, was impressed too. It comes together a little like a meatloaf with egg, onions, and panko breadcrumbs, but you fry it like a hamburger. This version used a little silken tofu in place of dairy. You finish it off with an umami loaded sauce made of the pan juices, red wine, oyster and Worcestershire sauces, and of course, ketchup. Scott said it was kind of a pain to make, but definitely worth it. I agree, and we'll link to the recipe on our blog. Yeah, that sounds delicious and totally worth all the heartburn that I would get <laughs> from eating that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it was. Um, and we served it the Japanese style over rice, um, but you you could have served it on a on a hamburger bun if you wanted to as well. But anyway, very good. Um, and I also wanted to mention that Yoko Ogawa has a new book out called The Memory Police, and that is also getting rave reviews. Um, and it's also about memory, but the book is more dystopian than domestic. Um, so if sci-fi and speculative fiction are more your thing, you might want to give it a try instead. It's available also as a downloadable audiobook on Kentucky Libraries Unbound or RB Digital.
So for my first one, uh, I did Batman, the Jiro Kawada Bat Manga, uh, just volume one, which is a lot of comics. Um, it's first is the first set in the collected series of a Batman shonen manga published in 1960s Japan, while the original American TV show was in its prime. Uh, for a little bit of background, if you don't know some of the terminology, manga is a specific form of Japanese comic. It's sort of a style. And shonen refers to manga whose target audience is males years 15 and younger. Or you could also think of shonen as comics aimed towards middle grade and junior high readers who have an interest in action comics. Jiro Kawada's Batman is engaging yet over the top. True to Adam West-era Batman. Each story arc focuses on its own kooky, maniacal villains such as Lord Deathman, Dr. Faceless, the Human Ball, Professor Gorilla, Gogo the Magician, and a politician gone full mutant. If you're used to current-day mega-series Batman, it may be a bit jarring to hop back into this era where the stories have more of a zany Scooby-Doo feel. Still, there's a lot of fun to be had following Bruce Wayne, Batman, and Dick Grayson, Robin, as they nab the bad guy time and time again. The series gets true early day comics credit for including educational material that helped them justify young readership to parents. That said, the educational value gets a little lost in the occasional pseudoscience or drastic exag exaggeration of... Uh, scientific principles for the sake of excitement. And honestly, I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, explosive exaggeration is really the spirit of 1960s Batman, so it just wouldn't be the same without it. That said, anyone with interest in Japanese language may find it exciting that the English translation maintains kanji for onomatopoeia sound effects. Uh, so that is Japanese writing using Chinese characters. And the onomatopoeia is just uh, a word that sounds like the sound it makes, you know, like the swish, boom, pow kind of stuff that comics are really famous for. Uh, we've got three volumes of Jiro Kawada's Batman on Hoopla Digital, if you'd like to read the series with your library card. This Batman was a westernized character being introduced to a Japanese audience, so I think it's fitting to choose a Japanese recipe with a western influence. Fried rice omelette, or omu rice, is an incredibly popular breakfast especially with children. The recipe is available in Japanese cooking made simple on Hoopla. Basically, omo rice is a ketchup-flavored fried rice topped with an omelet. When I've made omo rice, I've just used ketchup as a topping rather than cooked it into the rice, and I added cheese to the omelet. It's an easy, tasty, and filling meal that'll have you ready to beat the bad guys. <laughs> you know, like eggs. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist cracking a yolk right there. The... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that sounds really good. It's funny that both of our recipes are Japanese Western influence so far and both have ketchup in them. Yeah, and both are like served on top of rice too. <laughs> yeah, I usually, when I get like Chinese food, I'll save the, the leftover white rice because it feels like empty calories to me, and I'll make mm -hmm. omu rice in the morning with it. Oh yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> good tip.
my first recommendation is Frankenstein in Baghdad by Ahmed Zadawi, translated from Arabic. The story centers in Hadi, a junk dealer who lives in the ruin of a collapsed house in the Badawin district of Baghdad. After his best friend is killed in a suicide bombing, an almost daily occurrence in Baghdad, a deep change settles over him. He begins collecting body parts that he finds after suicide bombs go off to build a complete corpse, hoping it will be acknowledged as a person by the government and receive a proper burial. Coming home one day, he notices that his creation, which he dubs the What's-Its-Name, is missing. It starts carving a bloody trail through Baghdad, first taking revenge for each body part it was created with, and then starts killing for survival. As its notoriety spreads through Baghdad, the what's-its-name starts impacting the lives of others like Alishva, who lives in the house next to Hadi, and continues to hold out hope that her son Daniel will come home from the Iran-Iraq war that ended 20 years previous. And Mahmoud, a journalist who is trying to make it big as a reporter by tracking the story of the what's-its-name. It also starts attracting the attention of the shadowy pursuit and tracking department, a government entity tasked with investigating urban legends and predicting security threats in and around Baghdad. As a what's-his-name who believes it's just misunderstood continues its mission, it leaves an indelible mark on everyone's life that crosses its path, including Baghdad itself. Frankenstein in Baghdad is not your typical horror novel. Instead of retelling Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, it cleverly uses the Frankenstein's monster trope to weave together several narratives of colorful characters to form a surreal in complex tapestry that illustrates the daily struggle of surviving the violence corruption and horrors of u.s occupied baghdad through these characters you get a great deal of insight of iraqis struggling to live in the aftermath of the invasion riding the bus eating at a cafe or just walking down the street at the right time can be the difference between life and death it also shows that while many are just trying to survive there are just as many that are trying to take advantage of the void left by Saddam Hussein's regime, like Farage, who's trying to short power in Badawin with his real estate company, or Brigadier Mahid, the head of the Tracking and Pursuit Department, who longs for a position of great importance in the new government. The novel is also interwoven with many moments of black humor. One, one scene shows the military rounding up all the ugly men in Badawin, since that's the only description they have of the what's-his-name. Another shows the astrologers of the Mysterious Pursuit and Tracking Department dressed as the stereotypical wizards with full regalia, flowing robes, long beards, and conical hats. These moments serve to balance out the horrific moments and highlight the absurdity of war. So on Yumly.com, I found a delicious-looking recipe for Iraqi kebabs, a dish Hadi enjoys at his friend Aziz's cafe. It's a pretty easy recipe that calls for ground beef, parsley, tomato, onion, and salt and pepper. Once you mix up the ingredients, you'll pack it around skewers and grill at 400 degrees for four minutes on each side. I was finally able to get my hands on some ground beef, so I'll be cooking these up later this week. Sounds good. So you were able to find some Iraqi horrors. <laughs> would you call it horror or would you call it suspense? Um, I think it uses the... not really, I guess it would be classified as horror since it uses the Frankenstein's monster yeah but i think it just uses that to kind of tell the what is the daily life and what it's like in iraq post mm -hmm. u.s invasion of 2003. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some moments of you know of horror bloody and blood and violence and um you know suicide bombings but there's also a lot of surrealism and 
some dark humor in there. So it's kind of a complex novel. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not like the stuff I usually read or I've talked about on here. Mm -hmm. uh, be, it'd be a good one for like a book club or a, something. It could facilitate a lot of great discussions, I think. Cool. My next book is Mirror Shoulder Signal by Dortha Noors and translated from the Dutch by Misha Hextra. I first listened to this as an RB Digital audiobook last year, and while I enjoyed it, I found its stream of consciousness musings to be somewhat challenging to keep track of on my daily commute. But I knew I wanted to give the print version a try, and I'm really glad I did. Shortlisted for last year's Man Booker International Prize, Mirror Shoulder Signal is about Sonia, an introspective single woman over 40 who lives in Copenhagen and is having something of a midlife crisis. Sonia is bored with the Swedish crime novels she translates for a living, and she's begun to miss her home in rural Jutland. She also misses her sister, though their relationship is strained, and she's experiencing some physical difficulties. Her positional vertigo is flaring up, especially now that she's taking driving lessons for the first time. Sonia is very lonely, and above all, she has a deep desire to connect. Unfortunately, the people she goes to for help often seem to let her down. Her masseuse, Ellen, acts more like a new age therapist than masseuse. She wants to analyze all of Sonia's physical problems as emotional problems and seems to expect a deeper friendship than Sonia is willing to give. Ellen's own insecurities disappoint Sonia. Quote, a person who has her hand on the back of your heart shouldn't be unsure, unquote. Sonia's driving teachers also frustrate and disappoint her. First, Judah, who refuses to let Sonia shift gears during their lessons, and then Folk, who seems to be dragging out their lessons just so he can hit on Sonia. Quote, what does Sonia know about driving instructor pedagogy, the narrator writes, other than that the student must relinquish her free will, unquote. As that quote suggests, the book is often witty, I found the language throughout to be beautiful and surprising, and I highlighted numerous passages in the Kindle book I ultimately purchased. The author focuses on Sonia's character development rather than plot, though that doesn't mean that nothing happens in this book. Rather, she shows the full significance in the small, ordinary moments that make up most people's lives. I also found the ending of this book, when Sonia does at last make a connection, to be deeply satisfying and unpredictable. As I said before, we have the book on audio through RB Digital, and if you like to listen while gardening or doing house chores, I think it would be a good choice. We also have the print version of the book, which we hope you'll be able to check out soon. Sneaking away from a woman's hike to eat cake in a cafe is one of the many small rebellions Sonia makes in this novel. I baked a Danish dream cake in honor of that moment. 
It's not the layer cake Sonia orders, but with its not-too-sweet vanilla sponge topped with brown sugar and coconut, it's homey and delicious. You probably have most of the ingredients on hand already. We'll link to the recipe on our blog. Say that character sounds really relatable. <laughs> I'm sick of being at the picnic. I'm just going to slip out. Bye. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, I... I definitely related to her um that the whole you know just trying to like get her massage but her masseuse wants to be her pal <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, i don't know she would yeah i i i i found sonia not always likable but definitely relatable <laughs> Okay, so for my second choice, I have read volume one of Lone Wolf and Cub. Uh, also, uh, that volume is called The Assassin's Road. It was originally published in 1970s Japan, written by Kazuo Koiki, and illustrated by Goseki Kojima and Frank Miller. I suspect Frank Miller came in later with the translation. Um, this absolutely epic manga series with which spans over 7,000 pages in full, is definitely a read for adults, as it contains some graphic violence, adult situations, and occasional nudity. Um, while the content may be a bit strong for some readers, I'd encourage an open mind for this series, which has received a 2001 Eisner Award for Best U.S. Edition of Foreign Material, and a 2002 Harvey Award for Best Graphic Album of Previously Published Work. So needless to say, I did not read 7,000 pages. <laughs> I read the first of 28 volumes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the creators pay painstaking attention to historical detail of Edo period Japan. That's the period where the Tokugawa shogunate assumed role, uh, rule of Japan from 1603 to 1868. Uh, and that creates a deeply authentic story. Uh, and it also includes philosophies of the time, direct references to the era's famous classics like Sun Tzu's Art of War. And there's loads of Japanese vocabulary to learn, since many of the words don't have a sufficient English equivalent. There is a glossary in the back, so you don't have to look it all up online. <laughs> uh, the story follows Ronin assassin Ito Ogami and his toddler son Daigoro uh, traveling across Japan, collecting bounties as they go. Samurai belong to their own caste under the shogunate and were prohibited from functioning without a master or from taking on other kinds of work like trades or farming. Uh, when the samurai lost their benefactor due to death or other circumstances, they became masterless samurai, or ronin, and often took took up illegal work as sellswords. That's exactly the case for Ito, though I won't give the origin story since that's saved for the last chapter of this volume. Uh, though there is a long story arc where we get to know Ito and Daigoro, each chapter focuses on a specific assassination, wherein Ito works through careful strategies laid out for the reader. Uh, many scenes are really reminiscent of Western quick draw matches. Fights are often concluded with a quick sword draw or a movement, 
a moment of suspense and the dramatic fall of the loser. You might have seen some of those videos of like there's two samurai facing each other and then they just open the sword up real quick and then it shows them both like just juxtaposed and then there's a blood spurt and someone falls. It's, it's, it's like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's really dramatic, um, but it's fun. Uh, so these scenes are so well liked that Lone Wolf and Cub was adapted into at least seven Chanvara. Those are sword fighting movies, a TV series and a handful of stage plays. You may have even seen a few episodes of the popular cartoon series, Bob's Burgers, that does an homage to the movie series. If you have an interest in action stories or comics, westerns, or even just a touching father-son story, then I highly recommend you give Lone Wolf and Cub a try. All 28 volumes are available on Hoopla. Since this is a Japanese series with some deep, unexpected ties to Western popular culture, I think it's fitting to feature another fusion of Japanese Western styles with fluffy cheesecake, a Japanese take on cheesecake that makes a cotton-soft variation of our favorite Golden Girls accompaniment. The recipe is available in Japanese Cooking Made Simple, also available on Hoopla. I want to know more about that fluffy cheesecake. Yeah, I think it sounds fun. I want to say I've seen videos of it. Like there's one where someone has made like this little um, cheesecake, like cartoony cheesecake dude. And it's really jiggly and stuff. Or there'll be like a puppy or something. And they'll like smack its butt with a spatula and it all jiggles. <laughs> Sorry if that's not appropriate for the, for the <laughs> podcast. I'm not sure where the line is there. But it's on there if you want to use it. Um, and I also, um, I, I love Hoopla for the graphic novels and comics. And I think that's another great thing. I've, I haven't actually read any myself, but I've thought... You know, I don't really have that great of an attention span right now. I should read some graphic novels yeah. on Hoopla. Um, the format works wonderfully. For for this one specifically, it actually went frame by frame in the comic. So I wasn't mm -hmm. thinking of like, oh my god, how many pages do I have left for the next chapter? How far am I? I just kind of zoned out and went frame by frame like watching a movie. And mm -hmm. it, yeah, it was real yeah. smooth and fun. Cool, thanks. So my second recommendation is Hex by Thomas Old Huvelt, translator from Dutch. This is definitely more in line with the typical horror that I read. Um, so hi history is littered with many examples of people that can't seem to learn from their past sins. Just like William Faulkner said, the past is never dead. It isn't even past. That thought seems to lie at the heart of this novel. The small town of Black Spring, New York, is cursed. For 350 years, Catherine Van Wyler, the Black Rock witch, has haunted the town since they sentenced her to death for raising her son from the dead in the 1600s. With her eyes and mouth sewn shut and her arms chained to her body, she wanders the town popping up just about anywhere, anytime. Bedrooms, living rooms, the grocery store, even the middle of the street. Not only do they have to deal with a free-roaming witch, they can never leave. 
If they stray too far from Black Rock Spring, intense grief and despair will grip them, driving them to commit suicide. They also have to keep the outside world from finding out about her. To do this, the town employs a sophisticated and high-tech surveillance network called Hex that monitors the town through cameras and a smartphone app the townsfolk uses to report Catherine's whereabouts. It's fascinating to watch as modern-day technology is employed to combat an ancient supernatural curse. Story, while covering perspectives from the entire town, primarily focuses on the Grant family and the head of Hex, Robert Grimm, who has to contend with the town's council that's headed up by the zealot Colton Mathers. The Grant's eldest son, Tyler, a budding journalist who is about to graduate high school, wants to escape Black Spring by exposing the Black Rock Witch to the world. He films videos of the witch with his group of friends. These videos and the subsequent actions taken slowly cranks up the tension and suspense until it's let loose in a finale that is brutal, devastating, and absolutely pitch black. An ending hasn't hit me like this since I first read Stephen King's Pet Cemetery years ago. And while it does dwell into very dark territory at the end, the tone starts off relatively light and gradually darkens. The horror and, and humor genres, while seemingly very different, have a lot more in common than you think and cross over quite a bit. At the beginning, you see the absurd scene of the Grant family having normal dinner conversation while the horrific-looking witch stands in the living room whispering. Another moment, one of my favorites, is when a farmer is preaching on the street corner from an e-reader and having a whole bunch of trouble getting it to work. The author makes impressive use of America's early dark history to build an engaging mythology using the Salem witch trials and the lost colony of Roanoke for inspiration. If you're familiar with the witch trials, the name Colton Mathers might sound familiar. That's probably because the character is a very poorly veiled modern day representation of Cotton Mather, a Puritan minister who was heavily involved in the Salem witch trials. Another interesting thing is that this novel was not an exact translation of the original text. In the acknowledgments, the author explains that this book is very different from the original Dutch text set in the Netherlands. In addition to changing the setting in the English translation to the United States, he goes on to explain that he also completely changed the ending as well, which he wrote himself in English. I've never heard of an author doing so much work for a translation before, but it totally works. This novel is recommended for true horror fans. It is very violent and gory and bleak, one of my favorites I've read so far this year. If you're a fan of Stephen King, especially It's, Needful Things, or Pet Cemetery, I highly recommend this one. My pairing is the delicious-looking Bruja Rukwurst, a Dutch sausage and sauerkraut sandwich. I found the recipe on the website, thespruceeats.com. The closest thing to compare it would be the American hot dog. It calls for Rukwurst, sauerkraut, mayo, Dutch mustard, rolls, white wine, thyme, a bay leaf, butter, chives, and parsley. You can use any smoked sausage and granny mustard since Rukwurst sausage and Dutch mustard aren't easy to find. That definitely sounds like a grown-up hot dog. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Apparently it's served, um, not something you find like a sporting event, but more like a, what they say, an ice skating rink. It's like a cold uh -huh. weather food, apparently. Uh, I feel like that would be served with like a tasting flight of beers. Yeah. Very good beer. Sure. Yeah. So... They still consider it a translation, even though the translator seemed to take some liberties with the book? Yeah, I mean, apparently 
he, I guess he had the translator change the settings. Um, from the Dutch. so the writer wanted the yeah he wanted to change it to be set in the United States, but he wrote the last five chapters he wrote in English himself. The rest of it was translated, which is. <laughs> Very interesting. I've never heard of anything like that. It's really weird. Did the last five chapters yeah. feel jarringly different? They, I mean, I guess it's the same author, so it shouldn't feel too different. I looked it. it up, and the ending from the original and this one are very different. They end completely different. It's much, <laughs> much darker. It's kind of interesting. But apparently a lot better. I'm really curious yeah. to know what happens if the outside world hears about the witch or sees things about it. Like, why does that need to be a secret? But... Hmm. I guess I'll have to read the you book and find it. out. <laughs> no spoilers here. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. For more information about the podcast or the Books and Bites challenge, visit our website at justpublib.org slash books hyphen bites. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can learn more about Scott and his music at his website adoreforadesk.com.